You know, there's been many famous portraits throughout history. The most famous and probably most well-known painting of all time in general was completed in the early 1500s by Leonardo da Vinci. It's known in English as the Mona Lisa. It's believed to have taken several years for da Vinci to complete this work of art based on the various layers and techniques that were involved. And most believe that this is a, a portrait of a lady by the name of Lisa Gherardini, who was, which was commissioned by her husband, Francesco. Although now 500 years removed, there's still some debate about who, in fact, that woman is and, and just exactly what kind of expression she's making. Is she happy or what is going on with her? You know, for the last 200 plus years, this famous painting has been largely kept in the Louvre Museum in Paris, where approximately 30,000 people a day, about 10 million people a year, go to gaze upon that portrait. You know, this painting, while it legally cannot be sold by the French government who, who owns it, it's estimated to be worth somewhere around a billion dollars if it were to be sold today. You know, why is this portrait so valuable? Why do so many people go and, and look at this particular portrait? Well, you know, we can't really say that it's because it's such a great portrait. We don't really know who it was, and, and they've been dead for a long time, so we can't say, well, it just is a meticulous representation of that person. Probably was a good portrait. But it, it's really about the, the painter, da Vinci, who was so renowned and, and respected, and and it's the notoriety of this particular piece. It, it really became exceedingly popular in the early 1900s. It was actually stolen from that museum by an Italian who wanted to return it to his home country. And, and it, it led to just a, a tremendous amount of attention that, that really brought its notoriety to uh, world-famous renown. It's also significant because it revolutionized how portraits were painted over the subsequent centuries. Now, some of that was due to da Vinci's uh, skill and technique, his ability to mix color and to shade in a way that made it so lifelike. Some of it was related to the, the pose. At, at that time, it was more customary to paint a portrait with a profile view, and, and here he had her facing the, the, the viewer in more of a, a three-quarter pose. Now, the reality is for Francesco and, and other family members and friends, the Mona Lisa simply reminded them of a wife or a mother or a friend, but it has become so much more. You know, really, that's the case with the portrait we are studying in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, a portrait of biblical ministry. These verses in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, recount Paul and Silas and Timothy's visit to and ministry in Thessalonica. For the Thessalonians, as they received this letter... And as they recounted these things as it was read to them, it would have brought to mind specific memories of their interactions, maybe some personal encounters that they had had individually with these men, and just reminders of them as people. But Paul's goal in writing this was much more than fond memories. No, Paul's reminding the Thessalonians and us of their example so that we can imitate their ministry. That kind of ministry that, as he says in verse 1 of this chapter, is not in vain. What kind of ministry is it that is not worthless or empty, but that is of critical importance and, and has power and effectiveness in bringing salvation and transformation to others? Paul gives us 
a portrait of that in these verses, a model for them and for us, and, and one that unfortunately is, is as revolutionary today as the Mona Lisa was centuries ago, as it stands in stark contrast to so much of what purports to be ministry today. Let's read these verses together, 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 12. It says, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God." You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Last week, we looked at the first six verses and saw the primary commitment of biblical ministry to proclaim the gospel of God. Why was their ministry not in vain? It was because they were committed to proclaiming the gospel of God. We saw in verse 2 that with much boldness in our God, they they spoke to them the gospel of God. And in verse 4, how they were entrusted with the gospel and so they spoke. Biblical ministry requires at its core a commitment to faithfully proclaim the gospel of God and and really all of God's word, his, his message to us. Christ has entrusted his gospel, his message to us, and it's our job to faithfully proclaim it. And when we do so, the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation, saves and transforms sinners. Because the proclamation of the gospel was Paul's primary commitment, we saw he proclaimed it first with boldness, even in the face of opposition. They suffered in in Philippi before they came to Thessalonica, but they continued to speak the gospel with boldness, strengthened by God and knowing the importance of that message for those who would hear. They were willing to suffer to declare that truth, and we too must have that commitment. They were committed also to proclaiming the gospel with clarity or with accuracy. As verse 3 said, there was no error or impurity or deceit in their message. They didn't change that message or water it down. They didn't seek to manipulate to get the desired response. They communicated clearly and accurately the truth about God as the holy creator and mankind's sinful rebellion against that one true God 
about the perfect life and substitutionary death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and the command to repent and believe that gospel in order to be saved. Our primary commitment must be to proclaim the gospel with boldness and with clarity and, as we saw last time, with right motives as well. They spoke not as pleasing men, but God. Not pursuing personal gain, but the glory of Christ. Paul was not motivated by the desire for what he would gain, be that the accumulation of wealth or the adulation or praise of men, His focus was on pleasing God and on the glory of Christ. They were not in it for people to make much of them, but of Christ. Biblical ministry that is effective and transformative starts with the primary commitment of proclaiming the gospel of God. But Paul doesn't stop there. We see secondly in the the second half of this passage the parental characteristics of biblical ministry in verses 7 to 12. As I read these verses, you may have picked up on a shift between verses 1 to 6 and and 7 to 12. Verses 1 to 6 had more of a negative tone. This is what we did not do. Verses 7 through 12 are much more positive. This is what characterized our ministry. In verses 1 to 6, Paul was really amplifying their commitment to proclaiming the gospel by highlighting what they wouldn't do, namely compromise that message in any way for any reason to please people or for personal gain. But as we've already seen in this letter, there's more to biblical ministry than getting the message right. Our motives in proclaiming that message matter, and so does our character and the manner in which we approach ministry. And so in this section, Paul gives five positive characteristics that should accompany the commitment to proclaim the gospel. And you notice that these characteristics really connect to two examples, two parental examples, that of a mother and a father. Notice in verse 7, it says, we Proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. And down in verse 11, it says, We were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. And so, as we consider these verses, Paul is describing the characteristics of ministry really connected to what should be characteristic of, of faithful mothers and fathers. These examples both help us to understand what all biblical ministry should be characterized by. Hopefully as we study this, you'll say, oh, biblical ministry, it's like what a faithful mom and a faithful dad or father does. But they also give a powerful reminder of what should characterize us as parents. You know, many of us in this room are are currently parents, maybe of young children or, or adult children or Uh, having opportunities even as grandparents. Some of this room will, Lord willing, be parents at some point in the future. And and these verses, as we study them, are primarily about biblical ministry in general, Paul's ministry in Thessalonica. But they also help us to say, oh, that's how a mom and dad should treat and interact with their kids. So if you're a parent, may these verses spur you on to more godly, faithful parenting. And, And for each of us, may they Cause us to imitate Paul in the character and manner of ministry described in all of our relationships. So let's look at these 
characteristics together. The first we see Paul highlight is that of tender care in verse 7. Back at verse 7. He says, but in contrast to seeking glory from men and, and asserting our authority, we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Now, if you have a, a New American Standard Bible, you notice some margin notes in the, connected to this verse, in particular the second one connected to the, the word gentle. You, you see in the margin there it says three early manuscripts read babes, not as in fried chicken and Roanoke, but, but infants, young children. And you might say, well, gentle and infants, those seem like very different ways to translate this word, and, and you would be right. It's because there's some debate about what, in fact, that word is. The, the Greek word for babe or infant and the Greek word for gentle are very similar. In fact, the word for infant has one letter at the front in addition to the word gentle. And so they're very close. And that one letter happens to be the same letter that is the last letter of the word that comes before it in, in the Greek manuscript. And so some early manuscripts have that letter added to this word, and, uh, and therefore they would say the word is, um, is infant, and many manuscripts do not, meaning the word is gentle. This is one of the very rare times when there's a debate around what word Paul actually wrote, and, and there are good arguments on, on both sides. Those who believe Paul wrote that we became or, or proved to be infants among you generally connect this phrase back to the end of verse 6, which is grammatically possible. So it's more of a, a contrast with asserting our authority, but instead we prove to be infants among you. Imagine a, a young child, you know, who, is, who has desires for things. They're, they're not really throwing their weight around. They're, they're innocent, as it were, not manipulative in, in those ways. Sometimes they can be. That's how they would read it. Others who believe Paul wrote, we proved to be or became gentle among you, connect this phrase as the New American Standard does to what follows. We proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Now, I think gentleness fits the, the context better and is, is more likely, though either really is possible, and, and unless you lay awake all night wondering which it, which it is and losing sleep over that, you know, in, in terms of the meaning of the, this passage, it really doesn't make any difference. Paul is either amplifying what he just said or he is amplifying what he's about to say, in which case we know exactly what he is, he is saying. So, We'll take it as he, we prove to be gentle among you, connected to the, the reality, as he goes on to say, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Paul clearly states in this verse that their ministry was like that of a nursing mother tenderly caring for her own children. In contrast to what came before, those who seek glory from men and assert their authority. Nursing moms and their infants are not in it for the glory. You know, there may be a, a, a mom in our nursing mom's room who is tenderly caring for a child right now, and she's not getting any accolades. There's no recognition that comes with that. Paul says that was what characterized us. We, we weren't in it for ourselves, 
and we demonstrated the kind of tender care that is characteristic of a mother in that way. We were like a nursing mother. The word here is is more general. It's not the typical word for mother, but for a, a wet nurse, someone who was hired to care for a little one, which was common in that day. But here it's clearly a mother, as it says, they're tenderly caring for her own children. And that word tenderly cares for is a a word you might recognize in places like Ephesians 5 where it's translated as cherish. It's it's the idea to, to keep warm, to care for, to comfort all those things that a, a mother does for her young child. The picture is of a nursing mom who understands the fragility and helplessness of her little child who sees his or her need for care and attention and the great blessing that's been entrusted to her, and so she seeks to provide that tender care, feeding that little one, rocking them, soothing them, snuggling with them. But this is not just a care that mothers should show to their small children. As I mentioned, Paul uses this word in Ephesians 5 of how we treat our own bodies and how husbands are to treat their wives. Ephesians 5, 28 and 29 says, So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. This is Christ's attitude towards the church. This is what Christ does for us. He tenderly cares for us. This is how husbands are called to treat their wives, to cherish them, to tenderly care for them, and it is how all of us are called to treat others in in ministry. You know, men often think that being tender and gentle is a sign of weakness or femininity, but Paul was anything but weak. I mean, you remember how this chapter started. He said, "We, we had a lot of hardships and in, uh, in, in Philippi before we came to Thessalonica, and, and what did we do? Did we go cower in the corner? No, we proclaimed the gospel with boldness in the face of opposition. Paul was not timid, but he understood that godliness includes this idea of tender care for others. He could be both bold and unbending in his conviction about the truth and tender in his care for people. This is not only the example of mothers and the example of Paul and his companions, but as I mentioned, it's the example of of God and and of Christ. Listen to Isaiah 40, verse 11. It says, God is like a shepherd. He will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Or Ezekiel 34, 14 And following that same analogy, I will feed them in a good pasture, and their grazing ground will be on the mountain heights of Israel. There they will lie down on good grazing ground and feed in rich pasture on the mountains. I will feed my flock. I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken, and strengthen the sick. He does also say, but the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with judgment. God is tender towards his own caring for those who have come to him humbly, as we see in Matthew eleven twenty eight 
29 and 30 when Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus had a a tender heart toward sinners who come to him. He is gracious and gentle. And we see this heart in in the restoration of Peter in John chapter 21, both in, in Peter's heart towards Peter to be tender towards him in restoration. He didn't smack him over the head. He, he graciously brought him back. But even in what he commanded Peter, if you love me, do what? Tend my lambs, shepherd my sheep, tend my sheep. Jesus treated Peter as a kind shepherd, tenderly caring for him, and he called Peter to do the same with others of his flock. You know, there's a reason God uses the analogy of a shepherd for himself and and those who minister on his behalf. It's because this kind of tender care is to be characteristic. He doesn't use a cowboy, you know, driving the herd of cattle. No, it's a shepherd who who is leading and guiding and caring and, and protecting Again, this doesn't preclude admonishment or discipline, but it does shape how we approach those things. 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25 says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. Is this how you treat people? with gentleness like a nursing mother tenderly caring for her own children? You know, is that how you treat your kids? You know, it's it's a lot easier to do that when they're like three months old than when they're like 13, you know, and and there's a little more attitude. You know, there's attitude when they're little. It just comes out cute, you know, but when your kids are, are maybe a little more stubborn or rebellious, do you continue to treat them with the, the tender care, not, not necessarily lacking in firmness or discipline, but an attitude of, of care for them. This is how you treat your spouse, especially husbands, your wife, cherishing them, tenderly caring for them. Is this how you treat others in the church and, and even unbelievers? Or are you argumentative and harsh because you know you're right? Or is your boldness coupled with a tender care for others? This tender care requires a second characteristic we see in verse 8, which is that of sacrificial love. Notice how Paul continues. He says, We prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become very dear to us. He says, having such a a fond affection. This is a very uncommon word in in Greek. It seems to have the idea of of longing for or a strong affection for, hence its translation here. We see a, a similar idea at the end of that verse when he says, you had become very dear to us. You'd become dearly loved or our beloved because of our love for you, because of our affection for you. He says, we were well pleased, we were eager to impart, to give to you not only the gospel, we did that, we proclaimed the message with boldness and clarity that you needed to hear, but we also were well pleased to impart to you our own lives. 
our own souls because you had become very dear to us. He's not saying here that, that they literally gave of their lives for them. And one commentator puts it this way, describing their sacrificial love for the Thessalonians. He says, he involved himself in a very personal and self-denying way in the lives of the Thessalonians. Another puts it this way here, the reference is not so much to the giving of physical life and death as to the giving of that which constitutes life, our time, energy, and health. Again, remember the contrast to what Paul described before. Ungodly leadership, ministers, and and parents view others as a means to an end, as, as a means to get what they desire for their own desires to be met, and they treat them accordingly. Godly ministers, godly uh, parents, godly leaders view others with a tender affection and care. They're willing to give of themselves for their good because that's exactly how God has treated us in Christ. You see, Paul didn't come up with this idea of laying down his life for others as, as some new leadership technique. It wasn't that he took a poll and and found out that, you know, people are a whole lot more likely to believe you if they think you care about them, and so we need to be sure we demonstrate that, guys. No. This is what was modeled and and taught by Christ. You remember what we studied in 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, which says, we know love by this. How do we know what love is, what love looks like? It's that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That's where this model starts, with Christ laying down his life for us. And so Paul says, we were eager to give not only the gospel to you, but also our own lives to do that in faithfulness to you. First John 3 goes on to describe what that looks like. He says, whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. It's not just saying, hey, we love you. We, we have a strong affection for you. It was demonstrated practically in how they gave of themselves for them. Again, this is consistently what what the Scriptures teach about leadership and ministry. Mark 10, 42 to 45, Jesus called his disciples to himself, and, and he said, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. They're exactly what Paul was talking about in in verse 6, those who seek the glory of men and who are using others to get all the benefits that come. He says, it's not this way among you. Whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This kind of sacrificial love for others is what is to be characteristic of biblical ministry, a a giving of our time, our energy, our finances for the good of others. Is that you as a parent or as a child in your home or as a spouse, as a member of this church, as a neighbor, as a, a co-worker? 
Can you say that you have a deep affection for others that drives you to, to sacrifice, to give of yourself for them as Christ has given you, as Paul modeled, as, as a, a mother really models in the care that she gives to a little one? Biblical ministry is characterized by tender care and sacrificial love, which is accompanied by a third characteristic, which is diligent work. Notice verse 9, he continues building these characteristics when he says, For you recall, brethren, he reminds them of their affection for them, your, your brethren, and he says, you remember this. I, I'm not telling you something you don't already know. I, I'm just reminding you of what you saw when we were with you. What is it that they recall? Verse 9, you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. How did their sacrificial love show up in Thessalonica? Well, a variety of ways, but he highlights one in particular, which was their diligent work on behalf of the Thessalonians. He says, you remember our, our labor and hardship, how we toiled and, and endured and persevered and in difficulty in work, how working, exerting effort night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You see, Paul and his companions worked hard at Thessalonica so as not to be a burden to them. This idea of a burden is, is really a, a financial burden. They were not wanting to, to require support financially from the people there. And so they exerted themselves, working hard to provide for their own needs and to proclaim the gospel of God. This was Paul's pattern. In uh, Acts chapter 18, it, it describes Paul in, at Corinth and how he met uh, a Jew named Aquila and his wife Priscilla and says in verse 3, because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. We don't know exactly what tent makers means. Could, could be a variety of trades related to working with leather or other things. But in, in Corinth, he got connected with somebody else who did the same thing, and he was working diligently there to provide income and provision for himself. We don't know if they had a similar opportunity in, in Thessalonica where they were able to work in that, that trade, or if they just did whatever they could find as it was a briefer stay, but regardless, they worked hard because they didn't want to be a financial burden to them. Why didn't they want to be a burden to them? Well, it may be that the Thessalonians didn't have a lot. Second Corinthians 8 describes how uh, when a, a gift was given from the churches in Macedonia, which included Thessalonica, they, they gave uh, out of... Um, out of their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. So they, they probably didn't have a lot, but I, I think it really was more for Paul that he wanted to be very careful that they were not perceived as peddling the gospel for financial gain. He, he said it back in, in verse 5 that they were very careful that they never came with flattering speech nor with a pretext for greed. 
so many in that day would go teaching and, and instructing and, and discussing philosophy with the goal of, of getting some rich benefactor to support them so they didn't have to do menial labor anymore. Paul says, that's not us. We're not proclaiming this so we can get out of work and have money. And I don't ever want you to think that that's what was true of us. And so what did they do? They said, we'll work ourselves. We'll do the menial labor to earn the money so we can feed ourselves and proclaim to you the gospel of God free of charge so you know this is all about what we have to offer you by the grace of God, not what we are seeking to get from you. This didn't mean that Paul thought it was wrong to be compensated or supported in ministry. In fact, in Philippians 4.16, it says, even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. So after Paul had left Philippi, the believers there sent him some funds while he was in Thessalonica. So he was surviving there based on his own work and the gifts of others. He just didn't want that support from the Thessalonians as he was seeking to share the gospel with them and as they were young believers who were growing in Christ. In 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18, Paul makes it clear that it's, it's appropriate for elders who rule well to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. What's he, what's he mean by that? Well, verse 18, the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing and the laborer is worthy of his wages. He recognized it's right for the church to financially support some of those who served as elders among them. But ministry was never a means for financial gain to Paul. And he was eager to work hard, even at more menial labor, as he was ministering the gospel to others. Again, we don't know exactly what this looked like. He mentions working day and night, night and day. Maybe he he did his job all day, and then in the evenings as they were off work, he would take opportunities to teach and instruct and, and proclaim the gospel, and then he would get up and do it again the next day working hard with diligence. Again, this is not only the example of, of Paul and, and really the example of mothers working diligently to care for their little ones, but this is the example of Christ. You remember Christ's life. We, we don't see a lot of the majority of his life in Scripture, but we do know that he worked as a, as a carpenter, He did menial work day after day for years to provide for his family after the death of his father Joseph, and he worked hard during his ministry. I think we we see that in places like Mark 8 when Jesus was asleep on the boat in the midst of a storm. Why was Jesus sleeping on the boat? Was he he lazy? Was he like, hey, you guys do all the work. I'm done. You you guys are the fishermen. I'm a carpenter. You take it. I'm just going to take a little nap. No, I think Jesus was exhausted. He was working hard in ministry, doing what God had called him to with, with diligence. You see, diligence is a key characteristic of biblical ministry, not just working hard at the fun things, but working hard as a pattern of life so as to bless and serve others and to have a a platform for the proclamation of the gospel. You work hard at 
at home? Do your kids or grandkids see you exerting yourself for the good of your family and others? Or, or do they see you being lazy and expecting others to pick up the slack? That could have been Paul. He could have come in and said, hey, I'm an apostle. I don't need to do any of that stuff. You guys take care of us and we'll teach you. But he didn't. He worked hard. Do you work hard at work? You know, if you're a lazy worker, it, it ultimately ruins your testimony and compromises the ability to proclaim the gospel. You know, some think I want to talk a lot with my coworkers to build relationships for the gospel, and, and that's okay. There's a time and place for those relationships and proclaiming the gospel, but not as a substitute for doing the work you are hired to do. We need to work hard in our job or in our home. We, we do that work, but we also keep the primary focus on the proclamation of the gospel. Notice how this verse ends. We worked night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, and we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Paul's work, his diligence, his seeking provision for himself and those with him never distracted him from the primary commitment of the proclamation of the gospel. We proclaim to you the gospel of God. You know, certainly working hard is balanced by our need for and the command for rest. Both Paul and Jesus understood their God-given limits. You know, we have a limited number of days, a a limited number of hours every day, limited energy and the, the need for rest. We do see Paul taking time away, spending a winter at Nicopolis and other things where he, he understood there were limits to what he could do. Jesus often left places before everything that could be done had been done in that region. He understood that God has given us limits as humans. God doesn't expect us to do everything for everyone. I appreciate what Kevin DeYoung writes when he says, many Christians live with a low-level guilt that comes from not doing enough. That's really not Paul's intent here. It's not to shame all of us into doing more and wearing ourselves out in a way that's, that's contrary to what God's priorities would be for us. But you see, there's a difference between feeling the pressure to do everything for everyone, which we ought not feel since we're finite creatures and and not God, and we are one part of the body of Christ that ministers to one another in faithfulness. There's a difference between feeling that pressure and living a life of diligent, joyful, sacrificial love and care for others as modeled by Paul in this text. That's what should characterize us diligent work that flows from a sacrificial love for others and a a desire to tenderly care for them. You know, before we move on, I just want to want to say what what a picture of motherhood these verses are. Tenderly caring for, cherishing your little one, but not just expressing that verbally, but practically in a life of diligent self-sacrifice working night and day to meet the needs of others for their good, even at a great cost to oneself and with little to no earthly recognition. That's why Paul holds up this example. That's what we were like. We were like a, a mother caring for her child. You know, according to God, this is one of the highest of callings, motherhood but it is minimized and denigrated in our world. Children are, are viewed as a bother. Women should put their career and self first. And You know, certainly not all who desire to be mothers will have that opportunity in God's providence, but for those that do, it's a role to be embraced. And in the church and in Christians' homes, it's a, a role to be 
honored, and it's a role that we all ought to imitate. Paul says, we became like a nursing mom to you in our tender care and our sacrificial love and our diligent work, which leads us to a fourth parental characteristic of biblical ministry in verse 10, which is consistent integrity. Notice he transitions here to the analogy of a father. He says in verse 10, you are witnesses and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. He's clearly describing his ministry in these verses towards the Thessalonians as believers. There's not a sharp contrast between what he's already said and and these verses in that way, but his focus up till now has been more on the proclamation of the gospel, and now it shifts in verse 10 to how we behave towards those who were believers and how he was discipling and training them to grow in in their knowledge of and obedience to Christ. The first fatherly characteristic he highlights is that of integrity. Verse 10, you are witnesses and so is God. Again, he's reminding them, you saw this. This is not something I'm trying to convince you of that was true about us. This is what you clearly witnessed in our interactions when we were with you. But he says, not only are you witnesses, God is. The, we can fool people. People can have a, a misperception of us, but not God. He says, you are witnesses and so is God. How devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved or we were towards you believers. Here, they are stressing their conduct, how they behaved, what was demonstrated in their interactions and conduct, more than the motives which we saw earlier in this chapter. He says they behaved devoutly. This is a a word that that is often used in relationship to piety towards God. We were devoted to God in how we behaved. We were upright. We behaved uprightly, living rightly according to God's commands or law. The idea of, of righteousness, of living in obedience to what God has declared in his word, especially as it relates to our interactions with others. And we behaved blamelessly. They were above reproach. There there was nothing you could look at in their life and say, oh, wait a minute, that brings reproach on the message that they are teaching. You see, their conduct was consistent with what they taught. They were men of integrity. The things that they publicly taught about God and his word, they privately practiced They didn't simply profess to believe the gospel, they behaved in light of the gospel. And so they were an example of integrity to the Thessalonians. And this example, as we saw in chapter 1, had a a powerful impact. You remember in chapter 1, verse 5, we saw that it, it strengthened their witness. It was a key to evangelism. Look back at chapter 1, verse 5, where it said, "'Our gospel did not come to you in word only,' It wasn't just an empty message, but it it came in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Part of that was, just as you know, what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. 
The gospel is the power of God for salvation, and it is amplified through the example, the testimony of the ones who are proclaiming it. The gospel is true regardless of, his, of, it, of whether or not the person speaking it is living in godliness, but the gospel has a, a, a much more powerful impact when it is accompanied by a life that demonstrates consistency with that message. But not only was it key to their evangelism, it was key to, to the discipleship, to the maturing of those believers. Verse 6 says, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation, so you became an example. They grew rapidly in their discipleship, in their obedience to Christ, and a, a huge part of that was they had a model, an example of that in Paul and Silas and Timothy. You know, this is why the, the primary overarching qualification of elders is that they're to be above reproach. Not perfect, but demonstrating a consistent pattern of maturity so they impact others not simply by the content of their teaching, but by the example of their lives. But all of us should strive for that. All of us should strive to be godly examples of integrity. You know, this is something that we looked at again when we studied chapter 1, the importance of example in our ministry, not just our words, but how we live as, as parents with our children. If we teach our kids one thing with our words and we model something different in our life, they're far more likely to believe our lives. This is why a key part of any faithful biblical ministry is being a godly example of integrity with others. We need to ask ourselves, is this true of us? Are we living consistently in devotion to God? Is our goal and our desire and the decisions that we make reflective of a life that says, I am, am committed to God and to His way? Are we consistently living in a, a way that is, that is righteous, that is upright, that is in conformity with how God's Word says we are to treat other people and to interact with them with justice and righteousness? Are we living in a way that is that is blameless, or is there some area of our life that we are, we are protecting some secret sin or, or holding on to some pattern of life that we know is wrong? If so, we are undermining our ministry, our witness, and we need to confess that to the Lord and strive to imitate Paul as an example of consistent integrity. Is that what people who know us best would describe us? Is that what God's evaluation of us would be? That, that was the case for Paul and these men. But their impact didn't simply come through their example. We see a fifth and final characteristic of biblical ministry, which is tailored instruction in verses 11 and 12. He says, your witnesses how devoutly, uprightly, and blamelessly we behave towards you believers, just as you know, you're also witnesses of how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. They didn't just let their lives do the talking. They also did a lot of talking. They instructed others. And notice the nature of this instruction. He says, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you. There's some overlap in these words. Paul's not necessarily 
clearly distinguishing, you know, this moment I was exhorting you and the next moment I was encouraging you and I've got to know exactly which one I'm doing at all, all times. But there is some different perspective these words bring. He, he was exhorting, he was urging or, uh, or, or calling to one side in order to, in order to get them to, to, to respond in a particular way. He, he was encouraging, he was comforting or, or consoling those in need of, of strengthening and, and help. And he was imploring. It's an idea of, of testifying or asserting something as true and authoritative. It's, it's communicating the importance of something. Paul didn't present biblical truth and the commands of God as a nice idea for you to consider. He implored them. He, he exhorted them. This is what you need to believe and how you need to live. And he encouraged them in that process. But notice also the individual focus of this instruction. He says, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you. He doesn't just say we did this generally. He says we were doing that individually for each one of you. Certainly they taught publicly and in large groups, but they also understood the need for individually targeted instruction and interaction. D. Evan Hebert writes, they exercised discrimination and care in dealing with each individual convert according to his own needs. They used not only mass evangelism, but also engaged in personal work. Paul and his companions understood we need to minister to them as individuals in addition to doing so corporately. He encouraged them in much the same way in 1 Thessalonians 5.14. We'll get there in a, a, a few months where it says, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. John Calvin comments, Instruction given to all is sometimes of little service, and some cannot be cured or corrected without particular medicine. He's not minimizing the importance of the public proclamation of God's Word, of, of general teaching and instruction that is vital and a key part in how we mature, but we also need to be dispensing that particular medicine that others need or, or receiving that that we need from others. That was Paul's heart, and if you're a father, you understand this. Your instruction to your kids must be tailored to them. Oh, sure, as a as a father of five girls, there's times where I can give a, a good biblical speech to all five of them, and they all need it and benefit from it as we teach God's Word. But there's times where they need different messages because of their age and maturity or, or because of their own heart condition at that time of, of whether they are tender to the Lord and His Word or, or more stubborn in their own ways or, or whether they are downtrodden and discouraged or, or what it is that's going on. Discipleship in the home and the church is, is not simply a one-size-fits-all cookie-cutter type of approach. We absolutely need the corporate worship and instruction, but we also need the individual ministry to one another that happens within the body as well. Paul was committed to that, just like a father is committed to that with his own children, exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. And why did he do this? What was the goal of that instruction? Look at verse 12. It says, so that you would walk 
in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is a consistent theme of Paul, of of walking worthy, of living in a way that is fitting or or befitting of of something. Here he, he says we should walk in a way that is befitting of or consistent with, worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul didn't motivate them by saying, you know, you know what kind of example we were. We raised the bar pretty high. You guys better maintain that bar. No, he doesn't say walk worthy of of me and Silas and Timothy. He says walk in a way that is befitting of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. The God who by his grace has called you, who has drawn you to himself and and has graciously saved you through the work of Christ. And, And he has made you citizens of his own kingdom. You used to be rebellious enemies, but now you are citizens of God's kingdom, and and he's called you into his own glory to one day see his glory when that kingdom is, is fully manifested, and to increasingly share in his glory as we become increasingly like him. That's what motivated Paul. Again, it wasn't his own glory. It wasn't that, oh, these, these Thessalonians, if they, if they can really mature people are going to say, man, what great missionaries Paul and Silas and Timothy were. He says, no, you walk worthy of the God who called you. You live in a way so that when people look at your life, they don't think how great you are, how great we were, but they think how great God is, the God who has rescued us, delivered us from the wrath to come. You know, if you're a parent here tonight, I I hope that as we've considered these characteristics, you are reminded and spurred on in in being a faithful parent in the role that God has given you. Now, this is really what it looks like to be a faithful parent. It's not about providing your kids the the world's best education or the most exotic vacation experiences, not about the best extracurricular activities or, or the nicest clothes and toys. It's about faithfully displaying tender care and sacrificial love and diligent work and consistent integrity and and tailored instruction in your home. As you do that, you are displaying the characteristics that God values in a mother and in a father. For all of us here tonight, may we be faithful to evaluate ourselves in light of the example of Paul. to to look closely at this portrait that he has painted for us, not just glancing at it as though you're one of 30,000 people walking by the Mona Lisa and you say, I saw the Mona Lisa, but carefully considering what it is that Paul's example demonstrates for us and how it motivates us to be committed to proclaiming the gospel, recognizing that's our priority we got to do so with boldness and clarity, motivated by the glory of Christ, not our own gain. And and are we committed to displaying these characteristics? Because if we are, and, and as we do, God will work through the power of the gospel, amplified by our example and character and the manner of our ministry to bring salvation and transformation to others. Paul could tell the Thessalonians, you you know that because you saw that. You witnessed that in us, and you saw the impact in you. May God use us to that same degree, to that same end, and in the lives of others as well. Let's pray together.
Our Father, we thank you for this powerful portrait of ministry from Paul and Silas and Timothy. We thank you for their faithfulness. We thank you for their example to us of of those who genuinely loved others, those that you had given them to proclaim the gospel to that became so dear to them that they imparted not only that truth but their own lives. And, and I pray that we would imitate that example. Lord, give us a, a tender care for others, both in the church and, and unbelievers that we interact with. May we have a, a real love for them that causes us not only to desire to speak the truth to them, but to, to give of our own lives sacrificially for their good. And may we be diligent, willing to work hard for the sake of of those that we love and and the sake of the gospel. And may we live lives of consistent integrity, instructing others and encouraging them as as they need and as your word um, gives us the wisdom to do. Ultimately, do that, Lord, so that we ourselves and others will walk in a manner worthy of you, that you would receive the glory and the praise. We ask these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.